0: there were over 2,000 gods in the Egyptian pantheon, ranging from Amun-Ra, who was the god of sun and air, to Soptu, who was a god over a specific border and the forts on that border. In our episode this week, we fast-forward hundreds of years from the end of Genesis and find the Israelites trapped in the land of these thousands of gods. The irony? It was in this place, surrounded by statues and symbols and sweating under the strain of servitude, that Israel would truly come to know their own God, the one God, or better said, the God who is actually present everywhere and every time.
1: Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together.
0: Hey, you guys. Welcome to this week's episode. We're studying Exodus chapters one through six, and we're calling this episode, I Am. We'll get to that in just a bit, but I'm really excited to study Exodus. I know I say that every week, but I really am, I have been looking forward to studying this book and this story since we began the Old Testament. Um, I love Genesis and I love everything that's in it. I love the beginning. I love the creation. But this is the story that Moses really wants to tell. He wants to illustrate the history of the Israelites and God's saving of them and explain to them why they are where they are and where they get this law from that's so important to them. Um, And so I've been looking forward to this since we began. I'm really excited to study because this is the, if there's a climax of the book of Moses, the books of Moses, uh, this is the climax. So I want to begin by actually looking at the end of the block. This is Exodus chapter 6. And there's something the Lord explains to Moses in verse 3 that has always confused me until recently. He says, first in verse 2, God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And if you look at the word Lord there, you may have already noticed this or already know it, but it's in all caps. And every time in the Old Testament where the word Lord appears in all caps, the Hebrew word isn't actually Lord, Adonai. It's the what they call the Tetragrammaton. It's the four Hebrew letters that make up the name of God. And so that is Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on which vowels you put with it and, and which reading you give the name, which makes verse three confusing. So that, that word, the, the Tetragrammaton, the word Lord in all caps, has already been all over the place. You go back to Genesis chapter one and it's there. But in verse three, the Lord says, I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. And that always confused me because clearly his name is used in the book of Genesis. And if you look at the footnote uh, for the Joseph Smith translation, it shows that uh, Joseph Smith changes it uh, to surely... Or was not my name Jehovah known unto them? So even that corrects it to say, no, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob knew the name of God. They knew that his name was Jehovah. And so what does the Lord mean then in verse 3 when he says, they didn't know my name? Well, one possible reading of this is that they didn't know fully what his name meant. In other words, they didn't comprehend the full meaning of the name Jehovah. They knew the name, but they hadn't experienced this God who uh, is Jehovah. And to understand that, we have to figure out what the name Jehovah actually means.
1: Well, and I could be reading into this a little more, but for me, like you mentioned, Zach, that it's it's kind of exciting to think of, this is Moses' story that he's been building up to telling and That really what he's wanting to show, and we are going to see this as we go through Exodus, is who God is. And he's showing himself to Moses and the people and the Israelites to say, here I am and here is my power and here's what I can do for you, for the world, for your people.
0: Yeah. Well, so to that point then, uh, back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is called. We have the whole burning bush scenario and then there's this. Moses uh, asks a question that a lot of prophets ask. We mentioned this when we talked about Moses chapter one. He asked the question in verse 11 to God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's a question that a lot of prophets ask. And an answer to that question, just like we have recorded in the book of Moses, in the Pearl of Great Price, the Lord doesn't so much tell Moses who he is, He explains who the Lord, who he, the Lord is. And so he says in verse 12, certainly I will be with thee. And then in verse 14, after Moses asked, when I go and tell them that God is with us, they're going to ask me, what what God? What's his name? And verse 14, God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am Hath sent me unto you. Now here's the part where our English gets in the way. The words "I will" in verse 12 and the three uses of the words "I am" in verse 14 are all the exact same Hebrew word, which is Hayah, a very close cousin to the name of God Jehovah. In both cases, the name or the word means, I am, or, or maybe more accurately, I am present. I am eternally present. I am self-existent and always there. That's what the name Jehovah means, the self-existent one, the great I am, the God that is always present, which is different than other guy gods in ancient Near East cultures. They came and went. They were sometimes there. They were sometimes not there. You think of Greek gods, even though that's in a couple thousand years. It's not that far off from what some of the gods in ancient Near Eastern cultures were. They weren't always present. You had to call them into presence or you had to do something to earn their attention so that they would look at you. And Jehovah is saying, I'm not that. I am the God that is always there and always with you. And he'll repeat that over and over. He'll say it to Moses in chapter 4. When Moses complains about the fact that he can't speak, he'll say, I will be with your mouth. Same word, Hayah. I am always with you. Uh, he'll say it in chapter 6. We read a little bit in chapter 6, but at the bottom, he'll, he'll say again, I will be to you a God. Same word again. And so one way to read that phrase in chapter 6, 3, when it says, by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them? What he might be saying is they didn't fully understand what it means to have God always with them, especially when you're going through something difficult, because you're going to go some, through something, Moses, you and this people where you're going to experience in a very real way what it's like to have God always with you. Even when you're pressured by the world's greatest superpower, or even when you make your own mistakes that would drive away any other God, I am the God that's always with you.
1: So the question that we're going to ask today in this study is if if this is true, if we have a, a God as Moses is trying to teach us that he is always with us, just like Moses believed that he was always with him. The question that we can ask ourselves is, where do I see the Lord in my daily life? And I think that's going to be a really great great question for you to look for as you study these chapters. Um, and of course, we don't know what you do in your daily life every day, so we can't answer that for you. But you will be able to answer in your study. And what we're going to look at today, and some of the things that we found, is where to look. Some ideas that we learned from these chapters, Exodus one through six, is where to look for that. And where we're going to start actually is probably in the most obvious thing in this whole, <laughs> in this study this week. Um, in fact, as we were studying, I. I kind of said, "Well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell them to look into a burning bush. It's so obvious. That's where you see God." <laughs> and that's of course what we always talk about when we or when pretty much everyone knows that there's a burning bush associated with Moses, right? <laughs> that's a pretty famous part. Um and so I I said it almost jokingly, and then as I was studying, the thought came in to my to my mind that just how how poignant that lesson can be, especially in conjunction with this question is where to, where to look. And the answer to that, I think, is look for the things around you. Moses was just in the wilderness. He happened to be there. It was something he, a mundane thing he was doing. And he saw God in a bush. Now, the bush was burning, but I think that was, who knows what that meant, right? Maybe it was his description of the the brightness of God, or we don't know exactly, or do we, Zach? Do you no, have any no, thoughts it's... on that? <laughs> At least that's what I read about.
0: Joseph Smith called it a pillar of light. Others have called it, you know, a light, a bright light or the light of the sun. Or So it could be just something like that. It could have been a burning bush, of course, but it could have just been a bush that was completely illuminated with the, the presence and the glory of God. But right. Something like that.
1: So... I'll just start by reading. So his first encounter with God comes in chapter three. It says, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. And I started at the beginning there because I love the idea that Moses was just shepherding. He was doing, he was going about his work. Um, And maybe even going about the mundane things of his life is, um, shepherding the flock and leading the flock to the other side of the mountain. Um, probably doing some not very exciting work, which I'm sure we can all relate to (laughs) those mundane tasks that we have to do that are just part of our life that maybe seem like a place that wouldn't be the place that we're going to see God. And, I can relate to this in many ways, and all of us have different work, whether you're a shepherd, or you work in an office, or you work with people. Um, And for me, I know that my work for the past years has been the work of mothering young children, and that work has brought me in contact with a lot of other mothers in similar situations where I know I've heard often... um, us talking about how it's too hard to, you know, take time to read scriptures. Or t- I don't have time to really fasten myself with the things of God right now because I'm taking care of little kids. But I think that same story can repeat itself. I'm too busy with work or I'm too busy with this this situation or that this. Um, but I think that this example from Moses seeing God in the flaming bush while he was shepherding can be a great example to us, no matter the situation you're in. Um, For me, I will liken it to motherhood because that has been my situation. But I think that the mundane and the ordinary things that we do are a great place to look for God. And Moses teaches us this, um, that as we go about these tasks and go about taking care of people or taking care of Our personal tasks or interacting with other people, that God is in those moments. And I think He can teach us very powerfully in those moments as um, we invite Him to be a part of that or we look for Him.
0: Well, this is a really great point because I think if we're looking for a, a separate place or a separate time, for God to be with us, then yeah, finding that time or space is going to be difficult if we live a busy life, which all of us do. And so I like what you're saying, because it's not about finding a separate time or a separate place to uh, to connect with God. It's about finding the burning bush, something normal and something every day, but that's touched or, or inspired by God that then becomes a part of your life.
1: Mm-hmm. And to think about what might be a bush in your work setting or in your mm. daily life that's the ordinary that maybe gives you a chance to see to see him in action and maybe gives you a chance to communicate with him. I know for me personally, um, in my my mothering, I know that the situations that come up where I need help or have questions have brought me to my knees, have brought me to greater pondering because I, I want to come closer to him and have him help me in those tasks. And I think that, that that's a great way to um, maybe reach out if you're having a hard time seeing him in you know, your quote-unquote burning bush. That's a
0: great, great one. Well, the one that caught my attention at the beginning of the study is um, I loved in Exodus chapter 1 how all of the heroes were uh, women. In fact, named women. Um, I think it's one of the best places to look for God in the family members, the people that care for you, and maybe especially the caregiving women that have been a part of your life. So just by way of illustration, uh, throughout the story, I know that uh, Ramses is the popular name to attach to this pharaoh, but he's not named in Exodus. That's a guess based on uh chronology in the Bible and and trying to put it together with what we know about Egyptian history. And so that's the, that's the guess at the Pharaoh that was king of, of Egypt at the time of Moses. But we don't actually know from the Bible because he's never named. He's only ever called Pharaoh. However, in chapter 1, there are three women named and five women that play a very heroic, very important role in in Moses's life, all crammed into chapter one. It's as if Moses at the beginning of his story wants you to know the king of Egypt, which at that point is basically the king of the world is not important enough to be named, but these women who made such an impact on Moses do get named. And so, uh, the story of course begins with Pharaoh for some reason, uh, promising or, or, or commanding that every Hebrew firstborn child should be killed. And it says in verse 15, "...the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, "...when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then you shall kill him, but if it be a daughter, then you shall live." But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. So two women who do something, they defy the king of the world and uh, because they fear God more than they do him. And so, of course, verse 20, it says God dealt well with the midwives. Then in verse, uh, in chapter two, uh, Moses is born by his mother and she, again, instead of, Uh, instead of killing him, she puts him in the basket uh, in the ark, uh, which is a deliberate connection back to Noah because Noah was the beginning of God's people after the flood. And this is Moses, the beginning of God's people after the parting of the Red Sea. So there's a lot of great connections with Noah, but she puts him in the boat, uh, sends him down the river. His sister, Miriam, uh, sees him And the daughter of Pharaoh catches him. And then Miriam does this wonderful thing where she convinces. She approaches the princess of Egypt, which she's a Hebrew. And she approaches this princess to do something really untoward, which is to give a suggestion to her uh, of a a nurse wife or a nursemaid that she could get for Moses. And it turns out that it's Moses' birth mother. And so five women that do this incredible... um, all of these incredible things uh, in the name of God, at least some of them in the name of God, but certainly to bring about Moses and and his, his greatness. And then just two chapters later, when Moses gets married, again, his wife is named Zipporah. And in a kind of difficult part to read, it says that God was going to kill Moses because he hadn't circumcised his son. So he hasn't kept the covenant and it's Zipporah who goes and takes the son and circumcises him. So she's immediately obedient to God so that she can save the life of Moses again. So the whole story of Moses is he was saved by these incredible women who were brave and who feared God. And I think for us, looking into our families, looking at those that care for us is a great place to look for God.
1: Well, and I have a study Bible that specifically talks about Zipporah and labels her as a, a wife with an attitude. <laughs> so, also that not only your caregiving women, but Zach might identify with a wife with an attitude. I was just I'm, ask if you were I'm just say saying. That.
0: God bless <laughs> wives with attitudes.
1: No, I love that thought. I I just think that, um, well, especially I think this identifies this. Is one that probably you hold dear because you have some pretty amazing women that have have led you in your life, and um, I'm not referring to myself though. Well, just saying. I
0: I I do. If I have personal testimony that <laughs> I, I look at my my grandmothers, both of my grandmothers um, were just they were strong women. Um, my mom is an incredibly strong woman. My mother in law is an incredibly strong woman, and of course, you are. And and so I I have been guided my whole life by um, women who I believe were led by, touched by, inspired by God to be who they were. So I, for me, this is a very true point.
1: Well, and this is this is a really cool um, part of of the story, I think, because all of these women, and like you mentioned. Um, connecting it to Noah and where Moses was found and with, you know, the covering that he was found in and all of these women kind of helping him um, become who he became, I think is is just really neat. Well, the next point that I came across was probably another pretty well-known part. I guess this is Moses, so mo- many of these parts are going to seem well-known, right? Um, but we know that Moses... Um, teamed up with Aaron, who was someone that he needed to be his mouthpiece, someone to speak, because Moses expresses that he he is inadequate in that way. And that is brought up in chapter 4. It's in verse 10. But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, have ne- I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or since you have been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. The Lord said to him, him, Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And I love what we learn in this, that Moses expresses to the Lord what his, that he has a weakness and that he does not feel ready or worthy or able to do what he's supposed to do. And it is in that weakness that the Lord teaches him again, that he is going to be with him and he is going to provide for him and enable and allow and strengthen him in order to fulfill his calling. So it's in his weakness that, um, that Moses finds God again and sees his power. And I think that's another important place for us to look to is that in our weakness that we can see God's strength in a greater way.
0: You know, we, we misquote the famous verse from Ether 12 that says, where the God says, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. My grace is sufficient for them that they may humble themselves before me and I will make weak things become strong. We misquote it and we say, I give unto men weaknesses, It's not what it says. The Lord says, I give people weakness. I give people humanity, frailty, so that they will turn towards me, look towards me, and build a relationship with me. And when they do that, then I make weak things become strong unto them. And I think this is such a great point because when we think of weakness, we often think of it uh, in absence of God. I'm either weak because I left God or I'm weak because I haven't yet got to God or I'm weak because I've forgotten him. But it's in those weaknesses that we might actually find him and build a relationship with him.
1: And in our our weakness or our brokenness or our inabilities are the moments where God can really um, teach us and show us who he is and help us to... Um, I don't want to say, I guess I can say overcome our weakness, but I think that's what ultimately what what God is all about is just showing us who he is and showing us in those moments that um, we can do great things too.
0: Yeah. Well, my the one the other one that I found is kind of a companion to yours because what you're talking about is our own internal weakness. When something inside of us is we sense is wrong or off, that's where we can find God. And one that I found is when something outside of us is wrong, that's also a time or a place where we can find God. Way back in Genesis, the Lord makes this promise uh, to Jacob um, or to to Joseph through Jacob. And he says, this is Genesis chapter 46, verse 3. He said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. Now, there's some symbolism there, because Egypt, in the story and the narrative of the Bible, represents worldly captivity. In the story of Joseph, it represents saving, because they go to Egypt and they get saved from the famine. But in the narrative, the wider narrative of the Bible, Egypt represents worldly captivity. And so what the Lord is saying to Jacob is, don't be afraid of going into this position that's going to be difficult because I will go down with you and then I will bring you up again. Well, in Exodus 3, he reiterates that promise to Moses. He says in verse 8, I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, we know this truth about the Savior, but it's worth repeating that his atoning sacrifice was the act by which he condescended. That means he goes down below all things that we could experience. He descends below all human experience so that he can comprehend all human experience, so that he can transcend all human experience, and then so that he can help us out of those Egypts that we might be in. And so when you find yourself, quote unquote, in Egypt, whatever that trial or that difficulty, whatever that externally imposed frustration might be, remember that might be the best time to start looking around for where God is and what he might do to you, through you or, or to you from others. In fact, just to connect back to where we were at the beginning, this is chapter six, If you just circle the words have or will, you notice uh, the Lord provides a list here to Moses of everything he either has done for the children of Israel in Egypt or everything he will do for them in Egypt. And it's a beautiful list. I have established my covenant in verse five. I have heard the groanings I have remembered my covenant. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will rid you of their bondage. I will redeem you. I will take you to me for a people. I will be to you a God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and I will give it to you for an heritage. I am the Lord. Those promises cannot come true Unless Israel is in Egypt. Similarly, much of the Lord's promises that he has for us cannot come true unless we are sometimes in Egypt. And so whether it's in Egypt or whether it's with your own weakness or whether it's in your family or whether it's in the burning bush, uh, take some time this week to look around, maybe even write about um, places where you see God with you. And if you can see him there, it just becomes greater evidence that he loves you, cares for you, and has you in his his plan and will be with you. Thank you so much for studying with us this week. Hopefully, this helps you to see the Lord more clearly in your daily life, and we will see you next episode.